Father Matthew checked his watch. Vespers began in 40 minutes, so he rose and hiked the winding trail back to the monastery. When we arrived at the chapel, he stopped and turned to me. If you don't mind me saying, I think you're seeking, he said. All your traveling and learning, you're not going to find what you're seeking anywhere on earth. You need to break free of time and space and find something larger. That search has been going on since the beginning of man. He continued, ask, what should I do with my life? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to be doing? Who am I? What does all this beautiful order mean? Those are questions you have to ask yourself seriously and answer. You're the only one who can do it. Ultimately, it's you and something larger. That's the drama of all human life, and it's worth being a part of. End quote. So perhaps happiness is the dramatic effort of a long and hard walk with seemingly no destination. The terrain is rough and the weather isn't always perfect. It's a stroll into an abyss. But at some point along the way, by trying to make each step a bit less about our immediate desires, we realize we're happy, even though the journey hasn't ended. Father Matthew. Anyway, welcome to Glorious Professionals Podcast. We're here with dear friend and a very, what are all the, the things I'm supposed to put in front of your name now? Highly successful, number one, 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 number one, New York Times seeker. bestseller, seeker of all the seeker. things. You know, the man who hates comfort, anything you say to him, he has to do as long as it's really, really hard, who is sipping on a pumpkin spice latte right this second. <laughs> Michael here. Easter in the champagne room. We are excited to, to chat. Well, I'm psyched to be here. Should be fun. And yeah, you're going to make me do some terribly uncomfortable things. <laughs> what is that? 150 pounds? Is that what we're doing? 150 pound okay. mile at the end of the BFF, the, the baseline, uh, the, our PT test. Yeah, it's going to well, be awesome. I, it's not 100? It's 150 No, we're upping now? it to 150 today. Because you can still run with 100 pounds on your back. Jared mm. Newby proved that. He got 630 for his 100 pound mile. So we got to bust through that. These are, these are pleasantries that we're talking about right now. And that's mm -hmm. fantastic. I, I want to, so people listening, they, they've read comfort crisis. Mm -hmm. They've got scarcity brain. They've read them both. Um, you've been on seemingly every podcast out there. That's fantastic. What you, people can go listen to those. You're, you're, I enjoy listening to you. That's all that that's wonderful. But I want to dig into the last chapter because this is where it really the scarcity brain, it really the book really resonated with me. And the title of the chapter is just happiness. And so before we dig into Father Matthew, just kind of set the stage for for what that chapter, what that experience was like for you. So the book, I mean, people have maybe read the book, but if you haven't, it looks at what humans are sort of built to crave, right? So everything from food to stuff, to information, to the number of people we can influence status. And so then you have to ask, okay, like, well, why do we crave what we do? And it's because all those things would have given us a survival advantage in the past, right? And so when you think about hundreds of thousands of years ago, when we think about happiness, it's like happiness is not something that humans are built to permanently sustain. Because right? it wouldn't have, it wouldn't help to survive, right? If you're the type of person who permanently stays happy, you have no incentive to stop seeking the things that are going to help you survive, 
in a rough landscape, right? Now, <clears throat> the way that I got to the happiness chapter is we've covered all these things that in the book, like leading up to the happiness chapter, like food, like stuff, like information. And so the happiness chapter really gets into the idea that we have everything we need to survive now. So what are we left with? Right? It's like, all right, now we can focus on happiness because we got enough food. We got enough stuff. It's like you can influence a bajillion people on Instagram at any moment if you want. Um, <clears throat> so we're left with happiness, basically. But we still can't sustain happiness. Right. We keep searching and searching. And I think that um, when you think about what hap this idea of happiness, which, by the way, is like really hard to define. Like, what is it? It's a warm gun. It's a warm John gun. Lennon, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a warm gun. It's like, there's a, it's funny when I was looking up definitions of happiness, when I was reporting the, uh, that chapter, I mean, first of all, the dictionary goes, it's feelings of like felicity and joy. And you go, Oh, okay. So what's felicity and what's joy. And you go to those two words and it goes, it's happiness. You go, Oh, what's happiness back to it's circular. It's circular. It's like, okay, well, what the hell is it? And it's like, no one really knows, right? Like there's no real firm definition for it. Um, but I think like you look at, okay, like this idea that I, we kind of know what happiness is, but we don't, it's like, we know it when we feel it. Right. It's like that Supreme court real, uh, ruling on obscenity. Yeah. It's like, I know it when I see it. <laughs> I know it, it when it I feel it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think in the past, when you think about like, if we would have gotten food, you would have had this moment where you're like, Oh God, I've been so hungry for so long. We just found a bunch of food. This is amazing. I'm happy, but that's going to wear away because like, you're not going to have food again soon. Right. So then we got to like have this nice hit of happiness and a hit of happiness and just keep searching and searching for the next thing. That's going to give us this thing. Um, we don't have to do the searching now. And so I think it is like, we get stuck in a cycle today where we can think that maybe it's going to be like this next purchase I make. That's going to be like, that's going to, that's going to be it. You know, or if I get this job promotion, like that's going to be it. If I just sell enough books, that's going to be it. <laughs> if I sell enough rocks, <laughs> that's going to be it. Uh, but the reality is, is we're not programmed for that to be it. So then like, okay, if it's not in the next meal, if it's not in the next purchase, if it's not in the next title I can put behind my name, well then like, what the hell is it? And back to what you read in the beginning. It's like, that's, that's the ultimate search. Right? that's what we're kind of left so, with. So to explore that, it led yeah. you to the monks. Mm -hmm. And this is where, look, I loved comfort crisis. You're, you're speaking to the choir. It was, a, it was a, as well. It was a very kind of, Hey, you've got to do hard things. It put so much, so much kind of research that was very interesting. It was a great story. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and it, it like described things that I already felt in my soul and scarcity brain made me really reconsider the way that the brain is working ag against us, which is a useful tool to know how the enemy works sometimes mm -hmm. to know how to defeat it. Right. So scarcity brain inside of the scarcity brain, it was this final chapter that really spoke to me though. It tied the whole room together. If yeah. you're a big Lebowski fan, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And so you to get up close and personal with this, like this idea of, Hey, they're, the world is tricking us. The marketers are tricking us. They're promising happiness. It becomes part of the 
way that we think about things and view things. And if something doesn't bring you joy, then you, you know, you donate it to goodwill. And, you know, it's like, you know, all of those things, but this specific experience, it took you to a place where there's none of that. Right. So I go up to this, uh, <clears throat> I drive from Vegas to this monastery called Our Lady of Guadalupe Monastery. And it's outside of Silver City, New Mexico. So it's like an eight, nine hour drive or whatever. And it's basically in the middle of nowhere. So the, the closest airport is in El Paso, which is three hours away. And um, it's a monastery for Benedictine monks. So when I get there, I, I get in late, by the way. And it's just totally black. And it's in this, like, you have to go up this windy mountain road. And I'm going for like a half an hour. And I'm like, I might be lost, right? And then the headlights, they, they catch this big gate. And there's like these two pillars that are holding the gates and there's like these big crosses on the thing. And it's like, Oh, we're here. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so I drive through and, um, there's this, uh, big, I, I guess they call it like the cloisters, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a chapel with like offices and this whole area where the monks live. And I meet this uh, monk there. And so the idea is, um, okay, I'm going to be there for like a week. Right. So he leads me up to this, um, place where I'm staying, which is this kind of just this basically house on the grounds up a road. Um, but the way, the reason I'm there is because the way that these guys live, it's all men, by the way. So there is a, uh, what the, what's the word for nunnery? It's not a nunnery. Convent. Convent. Yeah. There's a convent on the grounds as well. I asked you cause I know you go to church. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't ask Jason. Um, <laughs> token, token female in the room. <laughs> so I, uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to stay there for a week and what brought me there was this, uh, I'd read some research that basically found that these monks are happier than the average person. Like consistently their happiness levels are higher than the average person. Now, when you look at how they live, I think most of us would look at their life and be like, wow, that sounds terrible in a lot of ways. So for example, they can't talk most of the time. There's like very specific periods where they can talk. They get up at 3 a.m. every day to go to the chapel and pray. And they do that seven times a day. Sometimes, I mean, there's four of the sessions are an hour. Others are like anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. Um, they're told don't eat too much. Um, obviously you can't swear. They're not, obviously they're not married. They have to do manual labor four hours every single day. They, um, they don't interact with each other a ton. So when you look at their life on paper, it's like, wow, this sounds more like a labor camp than it does something that someone would select into. Um, but they're happy. And I think the reason for that is that they've found some higher purpose for their life, right? They're trying to do, they're trying to connect to, to God. That to them is what is most important to them and sort of doing the next right thing that pushes them in that direction. And so, you know, the chapter isn't suggesting that everyone go find God. I mean, if that's your answer, great. But I think what um, my takeaway for me, like what you read is like happiness or <laughs> whatever it is, right. is not going to be found in the next purchase in, um, going to the next, whatever, giving, getting that job title. I think it really is like subverting your sort of immediate desires to some higher, higher purpose that is going to help others. 
I think. And I think that the other thing that I found surprising is that we live in a world now where there's like so many stories about these things that, that we must do to be happy. And many of them are pulling on research and even, and even backed by researchers, right? There's like happiness labs in universities and they'll be like, well, you have to meditate to be happy. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not meditating. So I guess I'm unhappy, right? You have to be grateful. And it's like, okay, well, how do I do that? They're like, well, keep a gratitude journal, right? It's like, there's all these tips to be happy. And it's like, come on, like, that's not it. Right. Um, I think that what my main takeaway was that is that happiness is complex and it really just comes down to like, you got to get out of yourself in a way and you're never going to know exactly what the hell it is, mm-hmm. by the way. Right. Have you ever like met someone who at like 75, they go, I know exactly what happiness is. I've absolutely found it. I have reached the pinnacle of happiness mountain. I'm on it. It's great. Like, no, there's always stuff we can point to. Like, I could be a little happier here. Uh, but this is pretty good, right? It's just like I wrote in the book. It's like a freaking long walk. You don't even know where the hell you are because it's foggy. So, yeah. And and is there, like, can you actually ever get fully out of yourself? Right. You know, I mean, it's hard. <laughs> you know, I mean, this <laughs> yeah. is sort of the, well, the, here's, the rub of it all. Here's the thing. It's like, okay. So now that, you know, like, uh, meditation is really popular now. So you could, you could talk to someone who's really into meditation and like in that community and they'll be like, well, the, you know, our whatever guru, um, you know, he's, he is totally out of himself. He's reached enlightenment. But then you look at a lot of the behavior, like of those gurus and like, it doesn't necessarily line up with someone that I would consider enlightened. Like how many problems have we had with like leaders in that sort of positions with like, like not treating women well and things like that. And so like, even when we think someone has got the answer, the behavior doesn't always line up. It's like, no one is perfect. Right. And so to me, this suggests that there is not a perfect formula for happiness, although there are commonalities. Like if you're just trying to trample people so you can get a brand new car, so you can get ahead, like that's probably not a good idea. I think we can see that um, service tends to be really highly associated with happiness, like helping others. Um, but it is very complicated and it's very personal. But that's like the whole point of life, right? It's like you got to figure it out. Like one of the, I think one of the main things that I walked away with, with from this book is like that there is no perfect formula really for anything. There are commonalities that work for most people most of the time, but not all people all the time. And one of the issues is that this is a, this is a quote from one of my good friends, Trevor Cashy. He said like, you know, what 5% of people are special, need some sort of special treatment. And the problem is, is that 95% of people think they're special and need the like special path, you know? So, you know, it's kind of a rant, but. Yeah. And in going to these gurus, like it's that there were probably very good intentions, right. you know, and it's, you know, these, they become these false idols and it's like, it becomes intoxicating and it, and like, there's so many places to go off track. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many, how many, uh, revolutionaries stage, you know, very probably well-meaning coups only to become, <laughs> you know, 
sometimes worse than the dictators they were, they were replacing. I mean, it's, it's part of human nature. I think it's hard. It's hard to be, you know, elevated at that level and not get burned by the sun, you mm-hmm. know? So as we transition a little bit into the specifics though, I mean, when father Matthew's looking into your soul and he's telling you that you need to ask yourself, what should I do with my life? And as you have, you know, this creative process, I mean, you're a, you're a wonderful absorber of ideas and all of that. And yet I would imagine in the creative process and then, then in the writing process, you have to kind of reflect on that for your own, your own life. I mean, what, what are you, what are you coming up with? I, like, look, you've, you've had a very, you're, you're off to a pretty good start on the, on the whole book writing thing, you know, good, good job. Mm. You're, you're burning that gasoline all over the place right now. It's, 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 um, it's really fun for, it's fun for us to see and be a very small part of that journey that, that you're on. And I guess the, the question is like, you write this book that talks, I mean, to me, it all drove to this chapter about happiness. Like what did that make you think about now with your own life? Where, where are you? I think it's okay. So I'll give you an example. So the whole thing, like the whole book writing process, everyone involved in it, they all are going, well, I hope we can hit the New York times bestseller list. Cause that's like what the agents value. That's what the publisher values. Cause now we can leverage this. They all FaceTime me. I'm at whole foods, literally at whole foods. And like, I get a FaceTime from my editor and it's like five people are on the FaceTime. They're like, Hey, Michael, good news. <laughs> <laughs> You're a New York Times bestselling author, you know? And I literally, like, you do all that work, and I literally, I mean, this sounds terrible. I hope they don't listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) But I was just kind of like, great, like, cool, you know? And I thought back, and I'm like, as I'm doing this, like, this is a three-year project, right? A book is a three-year project. What part, what was the actual highs of this project? It wasn't, like, the selling. It wasn't the like, oh, you got on this random list that like, by the way, is kind of bullshit. Um, maybe that factored into it. <laughs> it's like the, it's like the time where it goes back to that line about like happiness is a walk through the abyss and it's hard. It's the times at like 5 a.m. when I'm trying to pull together a chapter and I'm like, this thing is off the rails. This absolutely sucks. This is terrible. And then like things start kind of moving And you kind of just like get in this zone and two hours later, you're just like, I just landed that plane. It's like that. That's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's like those two hours where it's like, it went from absolute hell where I'm like, why did I choose this job? I could have chose something much simpler, right? Where there's like no ambiguity, like a coder, either the app works or it doesn't work, you know? But I chose this one that has all these variables and getting those variables to like work in a way that's satisfying going from like what I consider a pile of crap to like, Oh, this is good. Right. Like we've, we've got this. I think I got this. Um, that's like the best part of it. And by the way, like the next morning I'm going to read what I thought was the good part and be like, man, that's a pile of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it's re- it's really just that process of like the create the creative process, you know, like probably like when I think of, of, um, I mean, you're building this company like you probably think back to like when you were driving around the country and are like, that was like 
sucked in the moment sometimes, but it, you probably look back on it fondly. Yeah, ish. I mean, there's some real doozies in there and a lot of pain. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, is it like Shakespeare, all's well that ends well? Maybe. But I guess my, the, the deeper question is, you know, when you ask yourself, what should I do with my life? What, how do you answer that? And how is what you've done so far informed that? I think that what I've done so far has informed me that like, you don't actually really ever know and you're never going to know a hundred percent. A lot of it is guesswork. Um, I think that I don't get as tied, like, you know, like, I don't know. It's very complicated. The answer is that there's no answer. The answer is that I don't know. But you're doing things, you're doing things things. that you, that you are doing in a premeditated fashion, a three year commitment to write a book (laughs) in a world where what 99.9% of all books don't sell 5,000 copies or something. And you're doing this and you're committing to it. There's real commitment there. Oh yeah. There's, there's commitment. Um, but I mean, just, you know, when you think like, what do I want to do with my life? It's like, well, I, I know I enjoy the book process, the book writing process and that like creative, creative process. Um, like I enjoy that. It like forces me into like the present moment, right? That's like all I'm doing is I'm doing that thing. And it's something that I get a lot of rewards from. Um, so I like that. So like, I'll do that when the opportunity comes up. But as far as like, what do I want to do with my life? The big question. It's like, I don't know. (laughs) Well, aren't you doing it? Yeah. Aren't you doing it every day? Like, Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're do you're kind of doing it every day, but like the idea that like I could ever figure out exactly like at this point in my, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You're You're just kind of along for the ride. And like, I think you learn stuff as you go, right? Like, you learn, okay, this part of the job I don't love, um, but maybe it's a necessary evil and maybe I'm okay with that. Um, I know I do really enjoy this part, um, but also like I firmly believe that you should just say yes to stuff to try it. You know, like be if things curious. come up, yeah, like be curious. Um, try stuff. Ultimately, I think humans learn from experience. You can read all the, all the books about happiness uh, in the world. That's not actually going to make you happy. You actually have to try all the shit in the books and you'll find like this worked. This didn't work. This didn't work. Oh, this actually worked for me. That's, that's exactly what I love most about your writing is that it's basically the musings of a curious person because your books, yes, there's a lot of things discussed and there's a lot of paths that people can, can take, but you don't, you don't get prescriptive. I think on purpose because you're like, it's kind of choose your own adventure, people, <laughs> what works for you. Right. And I, I love this idea of like, it's hard. I think um, we probably can all relate to being, if, if you're going to say you're a category type A or type B, what would you categorize yourself as? It depends on what it is. It, yeah. I, like, cause I would say that I was probably more type A and then I been working towards trying to be more type B as I get older, because I realized that type A's, our society is kind of geared towards that. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to get caught up in that. Like you're saying like the next status, the next purchase, the next, um, you know, relationship, you know, all these people find that when they actually hit these goals, 
that there it's kind of, it's, they didn't find happiness, that it's actually not the end of the road. <laughs> and it's a little, it's depressing mm-hmm. for people to go through that. So what, well, I mean, you said it depends, like, tell me more about that. Well, I think that, um, at a, at a certain point you need to, everyone's kind of a balance of each, right? Mm-hmm. Like at a certain point you, as a, I'll just take our, as a writer example, it's like, you have to be type A enough to hit a damn deadline and like get in the seat every morning and write, or else you're never going to create a book. Mm-hmm. So I'm usually writing from 3am to at least seven or not 3am, 4am to at least 7am every single morning. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, you're never going to produce a damn book. And so I have to do that. And that's like, I mean, you might consider that type A, right? We're going to write like every day. Like this morning I was up writing in you guys's guest room, mm-hmm. uh, making sure a newsletter got out. And I was wondering about that. Yeah. <laughs> I got my email. I was like, did you just write that? <laughs> <laughs> Which is wonderful. Let's and, plug it, you and, know? But yeah. then I was also like, maybe he scheduled that ahead of time. I mean, that's even more type A, right? You wrote it a week ago and then scheduled it. Yeah. and that's. I wrote it on the plane rides that's awesome. and then scheduled it, like finished it up this morning and mm-hmm. scheduled it. Um, at the same time, if you're too type A, things can become too prescriptive. So especially cause I'm writing about a lot of topics that are just, I mean, I guess you would put them into Do wellness. Do you know the origin of type A type B? No. I, I, I read this recently. It's, there was these doctors that randomly just, this was just their way of making sense of the world. There was these heart I think cardiologists don't quote me, but they were basically like type A people are more stressed, more likely to have heart trouble. Type B are more relaxed, less likely. And so (laughs) there was actually, you know, it's kind of kind of funny how we've lost sight of that. And it's morphed into this other, this thing that's, I think society want like is thinks it's more desirable. I think a lot of tests and, you know, job interviews and, and things in life are pushing for like, be a go-getter, you know, seize the day, carpet DM, all these things mm-hmm. like, you know, and, 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 and yet I don't think that it's really like, it's like what you say. It's like not necessarily bad or good inherently. Right. It depends on the situation and what it, what it leads you to. Or kind of, you have to find your own path. Yeah. And everyone's a little bit different. And to ask the question, maybe a little bit differently. It's like, what do you hope your, your impact is? Cause I see you doing, you're doing a lot of stuff. And I think that's a fantastic, a bias for activity mm-hmm. is something that I am in full support of. A lot of people are consuming and judging and, you know, the critical class grows every day of, you know, man, that sucks. Let me tear that down. And, and this has gone on since the beginning of time, but to be out there doing stuff is great. How do you, how do you kind of define success? Because I'm the same as you you hit some number or you hit some, it doesn't do it for me. I'm like, man, whatever. Right. It, it, there is an appreciation for kind of the journey and these, these little wins or these feelings that you get. So how do you, what's your impact and how do you kind of, what do you want your impact to be? And how do you kind of assess whether you're, you're walking the path you're supposed to walk? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I do, you know, in the book, I have a section that talks about how we fixate on numbers because it gives you certainty about whether you've done the right or wrong thing. Right. Cause someone can be like, if we, if we just sell X amount of rucks, like we'll know we've been successful, but usually that metric is not as important. It's a, it's a, it strays away from your original intent often. 
So we've had long conversations. Like you started this company partly because you want to get people to be more active and be more fit. Well, you can't necessarily measure that in the number of rocks sold. So it becomes very ambiguous. So for, for me, like I will get, I mean, I'm like everyone, I'll, I will be like, okay, well, how many books did we sell this week? At the same time, that's not why I write books. I don't write books to sell books. I write books so people can use the information to hopefully live better. So I will say that probably what, um, what reminds me why I write books is like when someone messages you and they're like, Hey, I lost 70 pounds because like I read the nutrition chapter in the comfort crisis. And then I did that rocking thing you write about in that book too. And like, that was, that was the secret sauce and I'm now 70 pounds lighter. And this has allowed me to do X, Y, Z with my life. You're like, Holy hell. Like that's pretty crazy. Or people who get sober. Cause I've written about that in my book. So they're like, Hey dude, like, you made me come to some good realizations about that. And now like I've been sober for a year and it's like, whoa, cause I've been there. I mean, you're kind of teetering over the edge and then you kind of pull back and it's like, you get really close to, you know, bad situations. And so it really is that for me, but those come in at like such random intervals. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's very easy to know that Monday morning penguin random house is going to update the author portal. And you're going to know whether or not your editor was like, Hey, we had a good week or eh, this week wasn't that great. Maybe you need to get out and do more insert some shit. I don't want to do. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Whereas the, the messages from random people is like, that's really, that's really what it is. Um, yeah. I, I, I think it's like, we kind of live for these fluky moments of like complete and utter, like, connection and we don't even know like it's almost miraculous in some reason like oh that, I mean that's a miracle when someone says like I read your book and I was able to to get to the other side you know of a, of a problem and yet and yet we can't you can't like live off that alone you know like it's you know right, it, like you can't be sitting there just waiting for this if you but that's why the bias for activity is so important because you're creating things and other people create these things and you put it out and, and you don't know, you, you, sometimes you don't know what the feedback is going to be and what the impact is going to be for, for, for years to come. Totally. And that's, that's something that we have to live with and be okay with, I think on some level. Would you call yourself an ambitious person? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I like to, like you said, bias for activity. Seeker. Which is, yeah. Which that's kind of like, that's ambitious, right? Like ambition is partly like you got to do stuff. You got to do stuff you think is like uh, productive. So what about the conflict? I mean, so look, if, if you play this forward and I, you know, in this world of hyper-specific quote, quote, influencers about, you know, you got to wake up and hit the, the sunlight's got to hit your face at a certain angle, as you, as you say, and you have to eat this specific thing and you have to do all this stuff. The influence that you're providing is so common sense counter. It's not hyper-specific at all. And I think that's an interesting, if I, if I turn the kind of marketing slash whatever side of my brain on, Mike, that's a really effective long-term strategy. There's no takedowns. There's no kind of 
quick hits on Instagram about this sucks and I hate it because this, and this is going to ruin your life. There's no, if you do these three things in the morning, you're, you're going to be happy. There's, there's none of that. Michael is living, you're living in the middle of the road for a lot of these things. And you're saying, I'm, I'm willing to get hit because that's hard. Right. Cause I think that's, you know, picking a side and then being like, so gung ho about that. And, you know, I think a lot of people have a hard time sort of saying, oh, I was wrong about this research that I spent all my life on. You know, they want it, they rather die on those hills. But, but I think that you're, you're positioning yourself using research and saying, it's kind of a toss up, you know, based, you know, here's what we do know. Mm -hmm. Here's some things we don't. You're kind of in the middle of the road and saying, it's okay to, to be there. Find out what works for you as a person, you know? Yeah. And I think that sometimes, sometimes we, it goes back to that certainty thing. It's like people, you know, if we, we have a bias for new information, we have a bias for certainty. So if someone can be like, yeah, stand, uh, get that sun at X angle for <laughs> Y minutes. It's like, okay, now I feel like I've done the right thing. Like, great. I'm, I can be and then confident. People have 900 things that they have to do in a day well, and you're, you're, exactly. you're blowing that entire thing up. So yeah. yes, the middle of the road is a fantastic place to get run over. But in this day and age, the middle of the road is also a place to get ignored. And, and that's kind of, a, right. and inherently that is at odds with what I hope you become, which is very influential. And, and, you know, that that's comes from having a bigger platform. It comes from having more success. It comes from selling more books or figuring out some way to reach more people's you know, consciousness or whatever. And the, the question, cause I'm, a lot of these are mirroring questions. Like you're a reporter and you, you ask these kind of questions, you, you pose them in the book that you're quoting father Matthew, but you're also asking yourself. There are also questions that I would ask myself. And it's, it's like, so how do you, I, I understand the, okay, along the way I get this great note about, you know, such and such person didn't kill themselves because they found a community through rucking or, and I, I've gotten a lot of those. I lost weight. I did all those things. And it is, man, I, I don't know how to process that all the time. I'm deeply, heavy. I'm deeply, deeply grateful when, when I hear those things, there's also kind of a, a desire in where that person exists. I know there are so many more and I feel like we're, we're pushing something very heavy uphill and to take a long-term view. It's like, how do we, how do we actually care enough about the number of books sold and feed our souls off of the, the personal feedback? And how do we make sense of all of that? And then we're back to, you know, what's the meaning of life and how do we find happiness. And then we're just on a journey still. Is but that but I, I just tend to think that call it whatever you want. This is the higher power working through you in these cases, right? Like you're inspired to go do these things. Like why, why are you inspired to go do these things, you know, and what makes you, these people find you at the right time? What makes them read you when they, you know, read something that you wrote and what yeah. makes that, what springs that into action? Like we don't, we don't know. No. We don't know. It's fluky. It doesn't make sense. We can't, we can't measure it. We can't predict it, but it's happening. And, and yet, you know, 
going back to the middle of the road, middle road is place to get hit. It's a place to get ignored, but it's also a place to meet people (laughs) from others, from not divided worlds. Right. And there used to probably be more of that. I think, you know, we've gotten to a world where there's more global unhappiness. There's more segmentation. There's more like, if you're not in my tribe, you're against me. But I think, you know, coming down to it, it's, I question sometimes it's like, what do we know for certain? You know, when I read people talking on the internet saying, I'm going to be on the right side of history. I'm like, how do you know? You don't. What is the right side of history? How, I mean, how do you really know? I yeah. mean, yes, we've learned a lot over the years and there's been some massive strides in, in the sense of like, you know, equality and, and, you know, not oppressing people and things, but how, how do ultimately, how do we know? We don't know. Right. I mean, especially, I mean, we're kind of all in a way, like in this like health, fitness, wellness realm, you you know, what's like allowed people to live longer. It was that we started like fucking washing our hands when we're about to perform (laughs) surgery on someone and like sterilizing surgical instruments and like, yeah, maybe we should like treat the water before we drink it. And like, Hey, maybe we should put the meat in a refrigerator before we eat it. Like, Oh, looks like people's gums are bleeding when they don't eat vitamin C. Let's like put that in the flour. Yeah. Fun story about handwashing and hyper influencers. There's, I saw something the other day, j- just trying to stress everybody in the universe out, right? Like handwashing is great. But there's a lot of good bacteria on your hands too. So don't wash them too often. Oh my gosh. And, and so what, every time you go to wash your hands, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to say, oh, am Half I washing wash. my hands too much now? Or, I mean, it's just, this is just right. not worth thinking about. No, but yeah, like. That's it. That's live, it. It's not worth thinking about. You went to Baghdad. You went to, you know, we've, you've been to Iraq. I've lived in Africa and, and been to other places. And it's like, you know what some of the most effective public health campaigns are? Teaching people to wash their hands. Yeah. I mean, simple, simple little things. Yeah. And, and it, it yeah. So this can't is, get to go get over analytical about it. That's kind of a systematic way of reducing the risk of disease and all this stuff, which yeah. leads to health. And in theory, you know, I think enough health and happiness are, are highly correlated. However you want to define yes. happiness. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's talk about risk. Because to go to the, well, uh, what's the last line in the book? I don't want to misquote it. I can't remember. You risk, so, <laughs> there you go. Um, you risk so much by hesitating to, f- wait, sorry. You risk so much by hesitating to fling yourself into the abyss. Meaning you have to take some risk. Yeah, you have to take some risk. You have to take some risk. Mm-hmm. And so as you are now, like you're the guy, we joke about it, that, you know, you write the comfort crisis. So now anytime something sucks and someone invites you, you have to say yes. You have to say right? yes. Because, <laughs> because, I mean, just the backlash, if you, you know, the random person that goes online is like, man, I asked a comfort crisis dude if he would do this. And like, he said, no, I think he's just getting soft, you know, <laughs> right? And it's, it's a joke, but not really. And so now you write another book and it's, you know, successful and it's more success. It's built upon the last one. And, and there's, there is a rung of ladders as this goes, like what's, how are you contemplating now? What risks are you looking at taking? Oh, risks in terms of the work. I mean, I think that basically I, I th- think that I, my goal is to just 
write and report what I'm interested in. And if I'm genuinely interested in it, it might be at odds with what my publisher wants me to write. Like I'm still going to do it. And I guess that's a risk, right? Because you don't know, like it's easy to get captured by like trying to figure out what your audience wants, but that's a good recipe just to repeat yourself too. And like maybe they they might like the stuff, but at the same time, if I'm just like turning out the same stuff over and over, like that's going to be really stale to me. And when it starts to get stale to me, the work will get stale for everyone else. Like you can, you can tell. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I mean, I guess the risk is just being willing to track down whatever seems most interesting at the moment. And it may not be what someone who read the comfort crisis is going to like, and I'm okay with that. For example, there, I, there's my favorite writers. They do books that I like more than others. Like, right. Everyone who has Different favorite albums, authors go, yeah, this right? is, yeah. Oh, I love this one. This one I didn't like as much, but like, I at least appreciate that they're doing something different. You know, I think the worst is when it's just kind of like the publisher or the, uh, I don't know, the record label or whatever gets in someone's ear and goes, no, you need to just like manufacture this stuff. Cause no, it, no one even knows who the hell those bands are anymore. Cause it was all manufactured in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess that, that is something of a risk financially, but is it a risk personally? Maybe not because it's just like, all right, I guess it's a risk in the sense that you go, the machine tells you that the thing was a failure and you can listen to that and be like, Oh yeah, this book, this book might've been a failure. You know, this book was a failure, but really was it? I don't know. And I think it's hard to like, pull those two things apart because there's so many different ways to measure things. Now the clearest way is to just look at sales and sales is how pretty much everyone else in in an industry is going to tell you like, that's how you measure it. So you might have 99 people going, well, that, that book didn't, you know, do so well. And it's like, well, measured by how just sales, there's like a lot of different ways to measure a book, right? Like how did it affect people? Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy the process of doing it? Did you get internal rewards from it? And sometimes I think that gets left out of the equation. So I think for me, I need to be careful to like keep my eye on the ball. And by the way, there's like 50 balls in the air when you write a book, but we all tend to look at the one that's like the sales number (laughs) and Mm -hmm. miss the 50 other that are often more interesting. And so remembering that like, there's a lot of things that work here and ultimately just, um, yeah, doing what I think is going to be the most, uh, gives me the most, something that I feel genuinely curious about where I, where I wake up and I go, hell yeah, we're working on that today. Mm -hmm. And I'm going this place and I'm talking to this person and it's going to be awesome. If I start to feel like if I don't feel that anymore, that's probably a bad sign. So what is your abyss? Oh, well, like, like what, what is your person? Like not even writing or necessarily writing or work related. Like what's your own personal abyss? Oh, I think I deal with, I think, I mean, I grapple with this in the book where it's like solitude versus loneliness. Right. So there's this weird thing when you go out to strange places as a solo journalist, where you're like alone, you're in a place where not many people really like you. You're going to be there a long time. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's risk. And you're just like, God, why am I not? And you can't escape it by the way. Right. Like most things in daily life, if we don't like a situation, we can just leave and get in our car and go home. You're there. You're like, you're like in it. You're like locked in. Like mm-hmm. I might be like, like a six hour canoe ride into some jungle <laughs> and then a 12 hour car ride. And then by the way, the flights only leave two a week. Like you're there. And so that sometimes you're just, I'm just going like, why the hell do I have this job? This is like, 
what am I doing? I mean, that's, 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 that's your type A leaving your body. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> that's you being like, I'm literally going with the flow on this connect on the Amazon. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> and, but then like, you just feel like very low lows. Right. Um, but then when I get home, I can appreciate everything else much more. If you don't have the lows, you don't even know what the hell a high is, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, you don't want to just kind of be, um, at like zero all the time. Cause if nothing is ever bad, nothing is ever really good. You don't understand how good it is. So like being at zero is like feeling nothing, right? You need to have like the negative 100 so you can get to the positive 120 or whatever it is. Being at zero is standing on the moving walkway at the airport in the middle with a yes. roll bag, with a roll bag, right? <laughs> yes. Blocking everybody else moving uh-huh. your life at the speed of the moving walkway. And it is a terrible terrible thing to do to yourself mm-hmm. even more than all the others. And you thought the Cinnabon at the end of the, <laughs> was going to help you out and make you happy. God, and you no. ate the Cinnabon and you just felt like shit. Now. So what has changed? I, I, is it fair to say that you felt like you had a lot to prove before the comfort crisis? Before? Yes. I had zero expectations going into the comfort crisis. No one knew who the hell I was. Um, my editor, overpaid for the book. He overpaid for the book. He gave me an advance. that was too high. Now I'll say it obviously earned it back. Good bet by him. (laughs) Um, but so I'm like, there was pressure to try and earn back the thing. And then when I heard how many copies I had to sell to earn it back, I was like, this is my last book. (laughs) Like, let's just like, you know, throw it all out there. Just try and do the best we can. But I had zero expectations. But did you have something to prove? I don't know. I think I just wanted to write the best book I could. Is it, is there more pressure now? There's more pressure now because people go, Oh, this book, like, Hey, your book changed my life. You have another one. (laughs) Oh my God. How much better is my life going to be now that I have two of your books? And you're like, Oh my God, if I don't, (laughs) man, if this person doesn't lose another 70 pounds, where are we? Hey, how much do you weigh, man? 150. Uh Oh, (laughs) this book is going to fail. Then you can't get any skinnier, right? (laughs) Metaphorically, of course. Um, there's definitely more, and there's more pressure from the publisher because the publisher goes, Oh, you did all that. And now like you have this audience, like the bar is they, here. Now. They start to put the machine behind you. Yeah. And then by the way, you're the engine on the machine. So if you don't like pull this fucking train up the mountain, then what, you know what I mean? There's definitely more pressure. So this, this last book has been, I mean, I'll be honest, all the traveling the last couple months, I've just been like, this is the worst, like all the promotion. So what, what is going on there? So we are in a working, we, this <laughs> yeah. is a manufacturing facility. People. There's a lot going on outside. There's I'm a not lot. going outside There's again. There's a lot going on. There's actually, it's like, you know, yeah, before Siamese Dream went on, on sale, they, it was at Tower Records in Chicago and they, you know, all these people lined out the door. It's kind of like that to do the hundred pound mile with Michael Easter, <laughs> except he's going to up it and do 150. We're doing so. 150 oh apparently. It's going to be, it's going to be starting 150. We'll see if we end it. So, so, so what's worth being lonely or being alone? Like the solitude or loneliness? No, I think I I do think that like I, for a long time had like a fear of being alone. I mean, I think everyone still has that to a certain extent, but I do feel like my work has allowed me to sort of like process that. Um, and appreciate being alone more. Like the act of going into a place where I'm like, I know it's going to be like, there's going to be times where I'm like, what the hell am I doing? But that's also like kind of the fun in it coming Mm -hmm. out the other side. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in the book, like I talk, I talk about how I'm sober and forever I just was like, oh, you have a disease, right? Because that's kind of like what you get told. And that's what I went in. That's what I thought going into this book. And I started like looking at all different points of view and really actually sitting down and being like, why the hell did you drink? And it was that I'm a person who I like exploring the edges of life. I like to go into interesting places and go meet new people and have like intense, extreme experiences. I say yes. When some son of a bitch asked me to rock with 150 pounds in two hours. Um, and alcohol was a very cheap and easy way to get that. Mm -hmm. But if you keep repeat, like chasing that edge, like it ultimately kills you. There's other ways you can harness that to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I think that that has been um, good for my career. Cause if, if addiction is basically persistence against negative consequences, it's like, well, writing a book is like three years of sitting in an office, just getting no positive feedback being like, this is hard. This sucks. But if you can like kind of keep pushing against that, then you end up with a book, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. No, it did. So two books later, and are you kind of, you're, it's about to be the holidays. I know that's kind of a, you're, you're eager to take a deep breath and spend some time at home. Yeah. And what has the journey like, how do you process in your own brain the things that you've written these two books about? What's uh, the themes of the, the I mean, oh, yeah. embrace discomfort. And now it's about understanding how the world is preying on you. Mm-hmm. And what, if, if you're looking for impact, I mean, if you read your own books, which you wrote, which you had to read probably a million times, nobody's read them more than you. Yeah, no. So, what has the impact on you been? I think it's really been that like, if, if things are, things that are challenging and difficult often come with the greatest rewards. And one thing that was interesting is talking to this uh, behavioral psychologist in the book. And he basically explained that, like, if you think about it, for, cause I always think about things through like, I want to know like the evolutionary lens, right? Explain why, why would this make sense? And he talked about how, you know, if you think of um, humans in the past, like not having enough food and like, you need to go out and find food or else you're going to starve. And it takes you a long time to find it. And it's like a really hard journey and there's challenge. You're like, Oh my God, we're going to starve and die. But when you find that food, there needs to be incentive for it to be like the most amazing food you've ever had. Right. It can't have the same internal um, weight and value as the thing that was easy. Like it can't, or else you wouldn't, it wouldn't encourage future persistence. We would have all died off. So it does tell me that the harder you have to work for something when you get it, the more awesome it's going to be. And so being in that space, that long drawn out space where it's going to be hard, it's kind of like it's when it's leading up to it, this is how gambling works, right? Gambling is not when the, I had talked to a guy in the book who's like a gambling expert. He's like, gambling isn't when the slot machine reels fall and you figure out if you've won or you've lost. It's when the reels are rolling. And life is really a rolling of the reels with like these brief moments of like, you figured it out, but you got to enjoy the rolling reels because that's the gamble. Like mm-hmm. life is, life is when the reels are rolling and you have to enjoy that and not just kind of be like, I need to get this over with mm-hmm. so I can find out the outcome because right. that the out, you find out the outcome. You're like, okay, 
Now what? <laughs> Hit the wheel again. <laughs> and you spend all this time ignoring the fact that that's like the rolling rails are, the, are what's important. Hmm. That's probably what I would say. <laughs> to kind of start to wind this down a little bit, you know, I mean, the, the question about where should I go? What should I do? And as you contemplate that, you know, again, several years, several years into this, this journey, which, you know, people are like, oh, it's so successful. And you can put these things in front of your name now that you used to not be able to, and it's all fine and dandy, but we're still just, you know, right now there's three people sitting here in a room and, you know, charting, charting a path, trying to move forward. In my case, you know, I'm like, I'm going to dive my boots on moving up a mountain somewhere in life. And like, what's, how are you thinking about what's next? Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, I really love books. I love the book writing process. So I want to do another book. And I mean, we were talking about this last night. It's like, how do you do it in a way that, um, maybe allows you to reach more people, whether that's like with different media or just trying to do something. Once you land, like I, I have an idea I'm excited about. We don't have to get into it. Um, that I'm like genuinely excited about. And then the question is like, okay, how do we do it in a way that feels like different and gives, allows us to reach more people and just kind of does, does something interesting with a capital I, you know, try some shit. And if we fail, it's like, eh, whatever. Like the reality is, is that what, you know, I think most people, I'll give you an, I'll give you an example from when I was, a lot of things in my life go back to like, how did this apply to me getting sober is um, I was one month sober. So I'm a damn mess. Right. And I get sent on this work trip for men's health and it's at snowbird and it's like with ski Utah's putting it on. And it's like me and all these other journalists and they're like trying to pitch us Utah, blah, blah, you get the point. So they take us to this really nice um, resort at snowbird and it's dinner. And so the, the waiter comes with his nice little suit on and he's taking drink orders and my order is last. So they're going, what would you like? And this person's like, you know, I'll have a bourbon, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is the first time I haven't like ordered a drink in front of people. Everyone's going to stop what they're doing and they're going to look at me and they're going to say, why aren't you drinking? And I'm going to have to explain myself to these people and blah, like I'm in my head the whole time. And so, you know, order after, and then it gets to me and he's like, what would you like to drink? And I'm like, I'll have a water. I just kind of look, survey the table. And, uh, you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. No one, <laughs> no one cared. No one cared. <laughs> no one cared at all. And I was like, Oh, maybe, Maybe I'm not as damn important as I think. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so part of it is like, it's okay to whiff, like the world doesn't end. And like, no one's like, I think sometimes it's easy to get in our heads with like, kind of everyone's looking at me to say like, what is, what is this thing going to be? And like, and if it sucks, people just forget. They're like, oh yeah, I really liked this book, The Comfort Crisis. That third one that came out or the second one that came out, I didn't like, or I like scarcity brain. Um, but then when I read The Comfort Crisis, I was like, ah, the, the hunting's a little weird. Like. Why'd you have to hunt? You know, like you don't have to have like win after win and people usually forget the wins and they, uh, or they forget the ones they didn't like and just remember the stuff they did. Yeah. like. So it's like, I think trying to like alleviate the idea that like everything has to be perfect. And it's like, just, just try and make it interesting and like 
true and feel like you did the the best job you could do. There's this like Jerry Garcia quote that um I'm gonna get the I'm gonna get the line wrong. But basically, long story short, is one night the dead they all do acid, and this is like 1968, and they go out to the Watts Towers in Los Angeles, which is like these giant towers this guy had built his entire life, spent his entire life building, and the city wanted to take him down, and they found that they were really sturdy, like very sturdy, and so they didn't take him down, and so like the dead go and they're looking at him and they're like high as hell, and Garcia has this moment where he's like he has this epiphany where he's like. I realized that if you spent all your life trying to make something firm and solid and perfect at the end of your life, it would just sit there and you'd still be fucking dead. (laughs) And I realized that I didn't want to make something that was so solid that it couldn't be torn down and flowing and moving and stuck and not fun. He's like, I just wanted to have fun. Like I wanted to have fun make something interesting that was like free flowing and alive. And like, that's it. And so that's kind of how I think about it. It reminds me of the end of that first season of Alone when the guy who he's like, you know, contemplating what he just went through, having finished the whatever hundred days or what it was being out on Alone. Because the, the coolest thing about Alone isn't the survival skills. It's the introspection oh, yeah. that people go through. Right. And he's basically said nothing, nothing but the love I have for others is going to be passed, passed on. Yeah, you know? totally. I mean, I think about even like these great works of art that are still part of our vernacular, you know, you know, Beethoven's symphonies and stuff like that. Like he didn't, he didn't know. Right. He, he didn't, he doesn't yeah, know. know. He doesn't know the, the, that, that legacy means nothing to him. Right. But it's a, it's a gift to us, you know? And so like this research you're doing and the, whatever ripple effects it has for people it's it's out of your hands now right you know? but you you brought it you brought it to bear well and it's like do i think that anything i write in my books is going to hurt anyone no so do i think it's going to help some people probably yeah right. so like if you help a few people and you make a living from it man like, eh, sounds like a good deal to me i mean you could be, uh, I could have a job where I'm just like foreclosing on people. There's a, there's right? a lot worse ways <laughs> yeah. to live. A there's lot a lot worse ways, ways to spend to your time. No, uh, no hate on people who foreclose on people. <laughs> I know that, you know, they didn't pay their bills. We got a fair deal here, <laughs> but you know what I'm but saying? Still, yeah. yeah. Repo, you know? <laughs> Repo. Repo with a, yeah. with a pipe. Well, will you talk, did, so you got this tattoo. Oh yeah. When was that before or after this visit to the monks? This was after. Okay. I literally, I so get up. So, our, do, have you guys had Scott on the podcast? We did have Scott on. He's okay. dear friends with Roger. So, he had visited Roger at his fire base in Afghanistan during Operation Bulldog Bite, which it's a crazy story. Casey Neistat was there. They did a documentary that, according to Roger, Casey just hasn't released because it's too sacred to him. Just doesn't, it's hasn't, one of those. Hasn't seen the light of day. Hasn't seen the light of day. There's all sorts of just crazy stuff tied in. I did a 26.2 rucking marathon with Scott. And Roger and Oz in uh, San Francisco, oh, cool. which was awesome. So yeah, the the guy that inked you is one of the best, if not the best, tattoo artist in the world. He's a he's a, a really dear friend of Rogers and certainly a friend of ours as well. And he's very um, he's a good dude mm-hmm. and a thoughtful dude. And um, I had just I shot him a message and I was like, hey, I, you know, I just assume that his status as a tattoo artist, I assume he's booked out until he dies. And like the, it's like Oprah and then it's Beyonce and then it's, you know, so-and-so 
was like, hey, do you know a good artist in Las Vegas? Because I figured you might be looped in. And he goes, oh, I'll tattoo you. And I'm like, oh, okay. And um, he, he goes, I'm thinking of doing this podcast where I talk to people uh, as I'm tattooing them. And that's the podcast. And so we talk about their tattoo. I tattoo them and we record it all. Do you want to be on it? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I got on the phone with him and just like brain dumped him uh, like just babbling this like nonsense about like that quote the abyss quote about like the unconscious and like the hero's journey and it just just psycho babble nonsense out of my mouth for like an hour and uh yeah he came up with this tattoo i have on my arm and i, I think he nailed so it. you gave him free reign he said do whatever yeah yeah, yeah. i mean oh, i saw awesome. it beforehand they- but i was like okay i just told you all this stuff like what what do you, and he just, he sent me a file. Desc- and I'm describe like, it for us. Like, what is it kind of? It's like a, so you have kind of like the, this like line structure that's like solid, but then in the middle you have sort of this um, sun and half of it is dark and half of it is light. It's like, you can't have one without the other. Right. And eventually the sun is going to set and um, you know, we're all going to die eventually unless Peter Atia comes out with a second book. And- <laughs> God bless Peter. Yeah. He's, he's, a great he, he's amazing, but I don't think he's going to be able yeah. to yeah. do that. Well, Michael, it's been awesome to chat with you. Let's Thank go you. stretch and do that kind of stuff. Limber you know? up for your, Limber for up. your nonsense. And yeah. um, thanks for coming on, stopping in Yeah, for all you out here. Thanks out there. I should say thanks for listening. This, this podcast has been brought to you by passion and love and respect <laughs> and all those kinds of no sponsors. <laughs> nah, we're, this is just a fun way we get to talk to our friends mm. and it's, it's a lot more fun when they stop in here. So maybe we'll do a little bit more of it in, in the future for now. Hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to us chat with, with Michael inside of the champagne room with all sorts of uh, pre activity, pre hundred pound mile, uh, uh, festivities and sewing machines and uh, music blasting and all sorts of fun stuff. So Dogs. thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon. And where can they reach you at? Easter, Michael? Eastermichael.com. Someone bought MichaelEaster.com <laughs> before I, I turned. I tried to buy it when I was 17 years old and it's been parked for how old am I? 37? It's been parked for 20 years. If you're listening to this, MichaelEaster.com owner, <laughs> hit me up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll write your check. Don't go to that place. Go to EasterMichael.com. <laughs> and it's, I don't know, I get three newsletters or something that I open, Michael's being one of them. And it's a, I, I love the ADHD brain of yours where you just never know what you're going to get. So it's a Christmas, it's a wrapped Christmas present in a box you don't recognize. And there's fun stuff in there so subscribe to the newsletter and um yeah do that talk soon